Good to see you. And as of this very moment right now, you've got perfect attendance for 2019. I hope you keep it that way. Hope you have such motivation after today that you'll want to be here every Sunday if possible. If not, you'll be somewhere. You'll be have your mind and your heart focused on God. Uh, the the teaching and preaching team has been doing such an awesome job, and we're going through the Book of Romans and talking about this foundations of peace. How how is it that you can know you have peace with God, and you can feel that peace and know that peace? And today I'm going to be preaching on the subject of grace. Grace. I'll be taking my text from chapter sixteen. Chapter 6 of Romans. And uh, usually when you're doing a sermon on Romans or on grace, uh, one of the go-to verses about grace is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, it's kind of with uh, fear and trembling or, or great apprehension or concern that I preach this sermon today. I probably uh, just, the sermon today, you'll know what I'm talking about when I get it further into it. Because when you think about this grace, this grace, you're saved by grace through faith. And I love this, and it's not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Not of works, least any man should boast. You realize when we get to heaven, I won't be able to stand there in heaven and say, God, what about all those sermons I preach? What about 40 years in the ministry? What about traveling all over this country preaching for you and, and overseeing 27 pastors? And what about, what about the hard times? And God, what about all of that? That don't mount for nothing. And, uh, but when you think about it, the way this sermon is today, that is nothing. One day we'll stand before God and we'll say, nothing in my hand I bring. I have nothing. I've done nothing. I've accomplished nothing that merits your salvation. Nothing. What can wash away your sins? Nothing. By the blood of Jesus. And so, there will not be any boasting in heaven. There's going to be one main theme in heaven. That's going to be Jesus. All about Jesus. It's our love and our adoration for Jesus. And so, we're going to get into chapter 6, 1 and 2. Teresa Dunchich did an amazing job last week of, of teaching on chapter 5. I love, yeah, give her a hand. She did awesome. I was traveling, me and my wife was traveling, it's amazing to me that we can just touch a little thing, and uh, uh, well, she was kind of got it facing towards her, but I can see too, driving, I don't think you're supposed to, but, and I could see the service, and it was amazing to me that we were out of town and we were driving, and I could be hearing the message of the church. I still am thrilled about that technology. Today, we've got a new little thing right here called Mevo, I think it's Mevo. And uh, it's right there, and we're trying to do better on our online streaming. We've had difficulties with it, so we'll see how that goes and see if it's better. You'll have to tell us. Tell all your friends when we get it right, uh, if it's good. But I want to talk today about chapter 6, 
we died to sin so we cannot go on living in sin anymore. Romans 6 and 1 and 2 said, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? This, this first point I want to make, this chapter begins with a question. The first question is a minor, kind of a minor question, and the next is more of a major question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And the, the question I had as I was studying, what, why aren't you asking that question right now? If we're doing a good enough job preaching the book of Romans, why is that not all of our question? If we're not preaching the book of Romans to cause you to ask the question, why don't we just sin because God's grace is greater than all our sins, then we're not preaching it right. We're not preaching it right. And I think Teresa preached it right last week. Have you been made to think to yourself, what can I say? What can I say then? Have you heard me explain that because of what Jesus Christ alone has done or what Teresa explained last week? Have you heard some of us explain that because of what Jesus Christ alone has done and because of only and simply putting your trust in him, that you are clothed in righteousness, all your sins are forgiven, every single one dealt with, washed away by the bleeding, violent death of Jesus Christ? Your sins no longer control or modify your relationship to God. It, as if, it, it, it is as if they never existed ever in your life. All your past sins and all your present sins and all your future sins have all been pardoned. All the deep scarlet sins have been washed away and your life is as white as snow. Not only that, God can never separate you from his son. You are, you and he are one. A single individual unit. And God accepts you as eagerly and as affectionately as he loves the Lord Jesus. I'll give you some examples, and I'm going to try to give you a lot of examples through the Bible. One way, when you read something too good to be true, the best thing to do is go back and find stories that relate to this that are good, too good to be true as well. In the last hours of an evil life, admitting that he deserved the end that he was receiving, a condemned man nailed to a cross, slowly dying until they broke his leg with a sledgehammer. He deserved such a horrific death, for he had been a vile man. But the moment he cried to Jesus to remember him, when the Lord came into his kingdom, he was safe forever. That day, for that man to be absent from his body was to be present with the Lord in paradise. That day, maybe as they do on death row today, you get a, a choice of a last meal. I don't know if they did that back then. Maybe somebody would have brought them a meal. You eat your last meal and you go to die. 
that day he may have had breakfast with Jesus on Mount Calvary and supper with Jesus in paradise that day. He was wholly forgiven through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That vile criminal that hung on the cross next to Jesus. Not both of them, but one of them said, Lord, remember me. The second example I'd like to give you, there, there's this vile, foul adulterer and murderer called David, later known to be King David. And he confessed his sin to Jehovah, and he was completely pardoned for such a cruel, vile behavior. A third example, Saul of Tarsus who tortured and imprisoned men and women who confessed that Jesus was the Christ. He did much damage to the body of Christ, persecuting it for months, challenging the initial joy of the first generation of believers. And yet, the risen Lord Jesus temporarily left the right hand of God and stood before Saul on the road to Damascus. There, he changed him totally. He didn't put him in purgatory for decades. He began to use him immediately for the kingdom. He became the greatest Christian preacher. And when he was about to die, he knew a crown of righteousness was awaiting him. What shall we say? That salvation is for those kind of people, for the sinful dregs of humanity? Human society Actually, that these criminals, that these adulterers, or these murderers, these sinful dregs of society, human society, that their sin magnifies the grace of God. That's exactly what I'm saying. I affirm that it does. Much like when you go in to buy a beautiful ring, a diamond, and they normally showcase it on a black velvet that it might glisten against the darkness. It's the vile, ungodly sinner that magnifies the grace of God the most. Maybe that's why Paul, or Saul that was later named Paul, maybe that's why he goes, of all the sinners, I am the chief sinner. For God to even be giving me a chance for God to even be loving me or caring for me. Against the blackness of my sin, I was the chief of sinners. But because of God's grace, His amazing grace, I stand before you today. Paul, Paul affirms that he's talking about that. Teresa, last week, if you listen to that, it's, it's shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is more sin, the more you sin, the more grace there is? Is there anybody in here that has the ability to outsend God's grace and God's love to forgive? That's the scary question, right? What he is saying here is there is hope. There is hope for every one of us if King David and the dying thief are there in glory, having been translated into the image of Jesus Christ, what did the dying thief do to be worthy of it? 
His redemption was all because of Jesus' pity. If these great horrendous sins are freely forgiven, then isn't there hope and assurance for you and me? That if you cry to the Lord for salvation, then His mercy will take you to be with Him where there is fullness of joy forevermore. Have you seen that? You are an evil person, but you can be ransomed. I'm an evil person, but I can be ransomed. I can be healed. I can be restored, forgiven, clothed in righteousness of God, changed into the very image of Christ. The very moment you open your eyes in heaven. The question is, the more indelible the long-standing and the blackness of the stain of the sin, the more glorious will be the fact of the all-being, all-being wiped away in the cleansing of every fiber of every stain. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will cleanse us from all traces of shame and blame. Your salvation from your wickedness will magnify the power of God's redemption. Do you see what I've been saying and what the team has been saying? Have I made the extraordinary nature of the salvation of Christ clear to you? I am not yet asking you if you appreciate the moral implications of his forgiveness. I'm not yet asking if you love the Savior who gave his life for you. I'm just saying, do you understand the logic? God the Son has taken all the wickedness and all of all his people into the lake of fire and all the guilt and all the shame has been consumed by the holy and just God so that your sins have all been dealt with you are forgiven you are as holy in God's sight as the angels are have you understood that do you see that do you appreciate that then if you have understood that, aren't you thinking, well, what shall I say then? What shall I say? Maybe you would be like John Newton that says, Amazing Grace. He was a filthy slave trader. One night in a scary moment of almost going, uh, in, in going down on the ship because of the, the storm, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Later he wrote the song, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Amazing Grace. He was overwhelmed by God's amazing grace. To this day, that's still the most famous, most well-known song around the world. Amazing Grace. Or could it be a younger version's of that song you might say amazing love how can it be that my God should die for me in other words there is a wonder to your deliverance and you can't comprehend it now I can't comprehend it so then you are beginning to ask these two questions that Paul asked in the opening words of the chapter if you're not beginning to ask them I think we haven't made the unbelievable wonder of what Jesus Christ has done, clear enough and simple enough. He dealt with all my sin. 
He opened the door of heaven that leads right into the eternal bliss of glory. And he did it for me when he hung and he suffered on the cross in my place. I was not, it was not because I made a supreme effort. It's not because I told him I would change. It was not a reward at all. It was sheer vertical, sovereign grace to me. Never deserved it. Never will be able to deserve it. Didn't do anything for it. I, not, I do not have one ounce of anything to boast of that grace. Is that what I'm saying? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly correct. That is the teaching of the Bible. So are you now beginning to think, what shall I say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If the greater the sinner I am, the greater the grace, the more the glory, the bigger the testimony, why don't I just sin more? That his grace may be even bigger and better. In other words, you are thinking if it is the only, only because of his grace, then I'd better be careful how I explain it to others because this could be a very dangerous doctrine. And that's why I say I stand here kind of in fear and trembling today. This is very different than the way I was brought up in, in theology. Couldn't I be encouraging all sort of lawless living? The buzzword would be back then antinomianism. By telling people these things, aren't people going to say, well, let me give the grace of God a try, a spin. Let me sin like David and the dying thief and Saul of Tarsus. Put it all together and then I'll have all this sin. And it'll just bring more glory to God when he redeems that sinful mess. God be merciful to me, a sinner, and I will go immediately to a great welcome in heaven with all the angels singing hallelujah. What grace, what grace, what amazing grace. That's the issue that every true preacher wants to preach. They want to preach the fullness and the freeness of the divine pardon so clearly that with such earnestness and assurance that the natural reaction among his hearers is going to think like that and ask the question of our text. A man has never preached the gospel as it should be preached unless he gets that response. That this could be dangerous. I hope today that you go home and you realize I preached to you a dangerous message today. He is going to think to himself and some of, of his more discerning hearers are going to think dangerous, dangerous stuff. This is going to encourage them to live ungodly lives. And maybe there was a polluted stream of teaching in the early church that was just that way. If you have been justified, you are free to live as you please. In fact, by sinning, you are actually increasing God's grace. If I sin, then I know that it is all covered by the grace of God. So my sin doesn't really matter very much because I know God of King David will forgive me no matter what I do. It was clever, sneaky way of justifying giving in to the lust of the flesh and of the mind. So Paul... Second point is Paul responds to that thinking process. He was, already, uh, he was already feeling what they were thinking. And so Paul responds to those words and he says, God forbid. 
Before we examine Paul's answer, be sure to see what answer is not. Because this is crucial, it's very crucial what Paul is not saying. Paul is not backing up on, it, on what he said. He, he, he is not saying all oh, the antinomianism has simply understood the radical character of justifying grace. He's not saying that. Neither did Paul protest, oh, you misunderstood. I didn't really mean that justification is all of grace and all based on the righteousness of Christ and only obtained by faith without works. No, Paul didn't back up on that statement. Neither did Paul protest. What I really meant was that justification is, after all, based on your behavior. No, he didn't say that. It's okay. Justification won't lead you to lawlessness because law-keeping is a part of what you have to do to get justified. No, he didn't say that. Paul might have corrected his opponents those ways if the thought was that their error, but he didn't. He was preaching it, and he knew where they were taking it in their sinful nature. But he didn't back up on his statements of justification and faith and grace. That wasn't their mistake. They had seen something with 2020 vision. Justification is entirely by grace. Through faith alone, on the basis of works in Jesus Christ alone. That is how anyone gets right with God. That is the foundation of peace. That is the foundation of Christian life. It's this radical view of superabounding grace that seems to have caused this problem. Grace alone cleanses and reconciles a holy God to a sinful man. So then what is Paul's answer to why people are justified by grace through faith? Do not continue to sin. His first answer is in verse 2. He simply says, by no means. He says it, and it's a rhetorical answer. We, we, can't, we can't do that. In other words, rhetorical questions don't expect an answer. They make statements. Paul was not asking a question. Paul was giving a statement. I want to give you an example of a rhetorical statement. Number one, for example, children, a parent's telling their children, children, if your, your dad asks you, how are you going to keep your room neat... If you throw your clothes on the floor and never hang them up or put them in the drawers, then he's not looking for an answer. He's making a statement. You won't keep your room neat if you throw your clothes on the floor and don't hang them up. It's a statement. Another example. A mom says, how can you expect people to be your friend if you're not friendly? Then she's not looking for an answer. She's making a statement, perhaps maybe even a plea. You won't have friends if you're not friendly. Well, that is the way Paul is using this rhetorical question in Romans 6 and verse 2. He is not expecting an answer. He's making a statement, God forbid, how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? That's his statement. That's his answer to the objections. So Paul declares, first of all, the words, God forbid, may it never be. This is Paul's strongest negative interjection. How can one translate this? Paul is saying it's an impossibility. It's absurd. It's nonsense. It's surely not. I want to give you an example. Say you were a slave to sin for years. Will you go back to slavery again? If you got any sense, you won't. He said, God forbid. 
Example, you have been delivered from some concentration camp somewhere. There's some prison. Will you voluntarily go back to living there again? God forbid. Another, you escape from the horrors of North Korea. Will you go back and live there again? God forbid. Another example, you have been delivered from the bondage of various addictions. Will you go back to those destructive habits you once had kicked? He's saying, God forbid. You lived in a world without hope and without acknowledging God, a world of despair as death gets nearer. Will you go back to unbelief? He says, God forbid. Paul says, God forbid. The third major point, Paul reminds us that we died to sin. Here's another response of Paul to the antinomianism. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul's entire doctrine of the Christian life hangs on this fact that all Christians have died to sin. Now I want you to note the tense that is given to this. The, the tense, he said, we died to sin. It's past tense. It's past tense. It refers to something that has already happened to every single Christian without exception. Paul is not talking about something that needs to happen. He's not describing an ongoing present action. We are dying to sin. And that again is a biblical truth that we are all mortifying the sin that is in our members. But not in this passage, nor is he describing something that is in the future. We will die one day to sin. This is not an imperative mortify, kill remaining sin. He is not enforcing any obligation on us. This is not an ex exhortation of a pastor, Paul, saying, Come on, dearly beloved, and all of us together, let us die to sin. Rather, this is a simple statement of what once had happened to all the members of the church in Rome. You have died to sin. The simple truth is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're already died to sin. It's a past event. It's an accomplished fact. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? A Christian is a believer in Jesus. And like all believers, anytime and everywhere, he has died to sin. It is a fundamental to Paul's practical application of the Christian teaching. At a particular point in his past life, there is this completed event. There is this past experience. There has been this definite, once and for all, irreversible occurrence that the believer has died. Let me say again that Paul isn't pushing the power of positive thinking here. He's not whispering, saying, whisper to yourself 50 times a day, I have died to sin, I've died to sin, I've died to sin. If you'll just tell yourself enough times, you one day you'll be convinced of it and you'll believe it. Paul is not playing games here. He is talking about the reality which has been done by God and every Christian. He is talking about you talking, taking on board in your reckoning and in your thinking a change of status and resources and relationships that have already occurred as you have entrusted yourself to the Lord Jesus. He is not saying let go and let God become your Lord. Paul is not encouraging denial. You know, denial is more than a river in Egypt. He's not talking about denial. He's not encouraging people who are whole hog in love with a life of unbelief and self to pretend that they're not. 
He's not saying, okay, you people that are in love with sin, just for a moment, pretend like you're not in love with sin and pretend like you've died to sin. He's not encouraging denial. Paul is describing the one of the the definite changes, the definite changes that occurs when a person entrusts himself in Christ. Paul, in this whole passage, is talking about union with Christ. The reason the believer has died to sin is because each one of us as believers are united with Christ. We're in Christ. We're in union with Christ. The believer dies to the penalty and to the power of sin. Think of who you are. You were in Adam. You were in Adam. And in Adam, we sin. Last, Michael, come up here. Bring your wife with you. Love the wife up here. I want to see last service it was Roger and Teresa. So it ain't gonna be that bad. If you don't mind coming up here. All right, I want Michael here. He's gonna be Adam. You be you're gonna be Eve. All right. All right. Just stay right there. All right. There was once upon a time in the Old Testament there was a guy named Adam. And God made Adam, and Adam. Adam, as you know, sinned. But when Adam sinned, he said, it's not my fault. She made me do it. So God said, did you make him do it? She said, well, it was that serpent you put in the garden. If you wouldn't have put that serpent in the garden that come and beguiled me, and the serpent, my old joke is, didn't have a leg to stand on, so he took the blame. So let's go many generations past Adam and Eve's sins, their kids. Sin was passed on to their son, Cain killed Abel. Before the first book of the Bible was even finished, there had to be an ark to save the world from the awfulness and the conscious sinfulness, the abhorredness of sin. And so down... A ways down, I could have been ten generations. Some guys walk along, well, you know, I'm a sinner. The reason I'm a sinner is because my dad's 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 dad was a sinner. I didn't have anything to do with it. I wasn't there when Adam and Eve sinned. He was disobedient through one man's disobedient. I became a sinner. So why are you living like you? I reckon I'm a sinner is the reason I live like I do. I just reckon that I... And we learned, hopefully last week, that reckoning is an accounting term. You take account of what you have. And so in accounting, I reckon I'm a sinner because I was born in sin and sin passed to the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth generation. We're all sinners because of them. But in the very beginning, God said, I'm going to fix this. I will send a second man, Adam. So now this is going to be... Jesus. That's a further stretch, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's that's Jesus. Let's pretend. Use your imagination. Jesus comes along and we have a new testament, a new covenant, a new beginning, a new story, not about death, but about life. And Jesus, he was the last Adam. And he was the first of a new resurrection and a new generation. 
There's terms like regeneration. That was one generation, and it passed on what that generation was all about, sin. Jesus started a new generation. That's why we can come to Jesus and be regenerated. If you don't like being a part of the Adams family, you can be a part of the Jesus family. And only through belief. Solely, 100% in Him. So through one man's disobedience, we all were made sinners. How many believe that? That's what the Bible says, right? Then why can't we believe through one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, we can all be believers? No different. The only difference is instead of reckoning yourself, I reckon I'm a sinner, you need to reckon that you're not a sinner, you're a saint. You can be seated. Thank you for... <laughs> if just pretend. Don't let that go to your head, Michael. But you are in Christ Jesus. Paul is describing a change, a definite change that occurs when a person entrusts themselves in Christ. Paul, in this whole message, is talking about our union with Christ. We die with Christ. Do you realize how dangerous and how destroying sin is? If, if we painted sin as black as it ought to be painted, you would hate sin. You would despise sin. You would fear sin. You would tremble because of sin. You would tremble because of the sin and what it could do to you or your children. When you see sin for what it is, you see grace for what it is. It's amazing. It's amazing. It is like that diamond on a black velvet. And the consciousness of sin, even though God said, I'm going to fix that. I'll, I'll send another man out of it. And through his obedience, you're all going to be, you're all going to be cleansed. Just to get by until that happened, God done symbolic type things to help remove the consciousness of their sin. One, they offered a lamb. Lamb didn't really do nothing back then. They shed the blood of the lamb. They said, okay, your sins are covered for a year. When Adam and Eve sinned, they killed a lamb. They took that lamb skin, put it over them. Okay, you're covered. God does not see your sin anymore. He sees the lamb's blood in his skin over you. But man couldn't, you know, there was still the devil questioning, you're nothing, you're a sinner. You're, 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 your father's the devil, and you're going to act like the devil because that's who you're kin to. That's your, who you are. But they did things like when they come out of Egypt after being in Egypt for 430 years, it wasn't going to be a, it didn't, they weren't going to get the Egypt out of them in one day. But they passed through the sea. When they passed through the sea, it took a lot of faith to believe that God could open up the sea. They went across the sea on dry ground. They went through that water, which is symbolic of baptism. When they got to the other side, the water crashed down, killing all of Pharaoh's army and their memories and their past. And there's a river now between them. That's what God wants to cleanse your consciousness, that you don't see yourself as an awful, awful person anymore. When people see themselves as a sinner, or a drug addict, or a murderer, or an adulterer, or whatever, you want to crawl somewhere and hide. You want to medicate. You want to, you want to forget. You don't want to remember. I may have a lot of people... Fool, but I know in my own private time, I know what I really am. And so God 
this message, this word to believe is an answer to a good conscience. Baptism is an answer to a good conscience that we were baptized, that we were died with Jesus, we were buried with Jesus, we were raised with Jesus. Now when God looks down, He don't see me, He sees Jesus. He don't see me in Jesus, He sees Jesus. Uh, he, he don't see uh, you know, Jesus in me, He sees me in Jesus. He sees Jesus. And I'm covered with His blood. This is the reason the believer has died to sin is because his, his union, his united with Christ, in human, union with Christ, the believer dies to the penalty and to the power of sin. Think of who you are. You were in Adam, but now you are a person united in Christ. And therefore, as he died on the cross, you also died to sin in him. All right? But what does that phrase, died to sin? Here is a simple answer. It means that you have been set free... From the tyranny and the domination and the ruling power of sin in your life. I'll give you an example. In Romans 6, portraying a slave owner. You know, back then, if you couldn't pay your bill, you went into slavery. If your daddy couldn't pay his bills, a lot of times they'd come along and take the sons and put them in slavery. Or the daughters. Until the bill was paid. You had to work it out. There's a year of Jubilee would turn the tables on that. Your redemption. There was, uh, there was times when one slave owner would sell his slaves to another slave owner. So what if you were a, a slave and you go up and, and they sell you. And then you're now got a new owner. And the old owner comes and says, hey, I want you to come do that. I want you to do that. On and you go, I ain't got to do that. You, you don't own me no more. You don't own me no more. I don't owe you nothing. I'm serving someone new. Forget it. I'm not doing it. Exactly what Paul is saying when the devil comes. And he will. You go, I don't serve you no more. You don't own me no more. You didn't pay a price for me. Get off my back. You're dead to the sin. You're dead to that slave owner. He can't, he can't bully you anymore. Why would you want to go back to it? Sin, who was formerly your master, said things like that. But you don't have to follow that master anymore. You were a man in Adam who obeyed sin. But when God's grace laid hold of you, God joined you to Christ and set you free. You have a new status. The chains have fell off. The prison doors are open. You walked out of that, stat that status being a prisoner to sin. And so the sin obeying man you were died to the sin ruling power over you. And you were placed under the rule of Jesus Christ. Once the slave has died to the master. The master can yell all he wants to. But he don't have to do what that master wants him to do. Another example. The image of uh, the ancient slave market. I think about in the scripture about Homer. Uh, Hosea, his wife, went a whoring after other men. Become a prostitute. She finally had nothing and she was used up. Nobody wanted her and now she was on the slave block to be auctioned off once again. People of that day Got what they wanted out of her. And God told 
Hosea, he said, I want you to go buy her back. And that's called redemption. You go, you buy, redemption means to buy back. But God, you, you know all she did. God said, yeah, I know all she did. I want you to go buy her back. I don't want you to love her. I want you to love her. Why would God tell these stories if these stories were not stories of the grace of God? Why would God, why would God, the woman caught in the act of adultery, why would we say, you without sin cast the first stone? All of them were sinners. Everybody holding a rock was a sinner that day. They began to drop their stones from oldest to the youngest. See, there is no people with no sin except Jesus. What about the woman at the well? Well, you've had five husbands. The one you live with ain't your husband right now. You live with him. Why are these stories? Why is this story about Mephibosheth? You know, David made a blood covenant with Jonathan. He said, well, whoever survives this kingdom thing that's going to happen, either Saul's going to die or, you know, David, you'll be the king or Saul. But whoever, you know, whoever comes out of this thing, Let's be kind to the other one. Let's take a covenant. Let's share blood. And they cut a place in the wrist and they held it together and they become blood brothers. Well, later on, David did get the kingdom. Even that sinful David, that adulterous David, that forgiven David, he gets the kingdom. And David says, you know, is there anybody, is there anybody left? They said, well, there's a guy, he's a crippled guy. His name is Mephibosheth. He said, go get him. I want, to show, I want to show my kindness and love to him. Now go get this guy that his family had, had, had done awful things to David. He brings him before David. David said, get the royal robe, the ring, set him down at the master's table, feed him all he wants to eat. We're going to give him some land. We're going to give him a place to live. All the days of his life, he's going to have many gifts and many uh, servants to serve him. And Mephibosheth was going, why me? I mean, what did I do? David, that's exactly, the, that's exactly what I'm telling you. You didn't do nothing. I'm doing it because of a blood covenant I made with your father. Folks, one day we will be in heaven at a great banquet. Streets of gold, no more tears, no more sorrows, no more addictions, no more pain, no more sickness. And if we understand the Bible right, we're going to be all so grateful. So astonished, so amazed by God's grace. And we, 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 we're not going to have anything to say about why we're there. Except for God's amazing grace. God's amazing grace. Another example, if you're a Christian, your life has two parts to it. You've got a B.C. and an A.D. The B.C. to me represents before Christ. Before Christ, we were sinners. We were slaves to a demonic, devil, satanic master. After deliverance, A.D. is after deliverance. The story of our life is a translation from before Christ's side to the after, deliverance side. That's why the phrase in verse 6, old, our old self was crucified with him. It is so crucial for us to understand your old self is the life you used to live. 
It's the person you once were. It's the old you with your old unbelieving way of thinking and acting and relating. All of that is now gone. The old man has gone from B.C. to A.D. Why would you want to go back and live in the B.C.? Why would you, be, why would you want to go be found in that life anymore? The believer is not regenerate man and then an unregenerate man at the same time. The believer doesn't have a new heart and an old heart at the same time. He says you can't serve two masters. Why does Paul go on in such a detail? Because the flesh is remaining sin and also the devil. He talks about these times. Our sinful nature would like to straddle the fence and have feet in both worlds. Paul finally sums it up in the fourth point here. Paul's final question is how can we live in sin? How can we live in sin? Notice what he said. Paul denies it's not that a Christian can never commit a sin. Paul says that you cannot live in sin. There is a difference between obedience and perfect obedience. The man who has died to sin is not yet capable of a perfect obedience. But he is capable of real obedience. Of saying himself, I can, I can, or I can, we, how can we live in sin any longer? Living in sin corresponds to the question in verse 1, shall we go on sinning? The idea of those two phrases, go on sinning and live in sin, are not the same. And that's possible for us to go on ignoring God. He says that it's, it's impossible for us to go on ignoring God in unbelief and defiance and rejection because we are joined to Christ. Can you imagine our Lord living in sin and going on sinning? No, then we can't because we're in Him. Of course you can't. It's just as impossible for a new man united in Christ deliberately to go on doing what sin tells him to do. So here we are in Christ, that is in our statue, status, is being joined to Christ. God established that once and for all. That is our truest position and our truest identity. Like that psalm they sung, I say. You know, we're always being told we're not good enough. We're not good enough. That, that is the decision, the repeatable and unchangeable. This is a decision. It's unrepeatable. It's unchangeable. This is the foundation for all our warfare against sin. And all progressive sanctification. We become increasingly what God made us at the beginning of our lives in Christ. The Christian life is, is an already and not yet experience of our position and our identity and our union with Christ. What happened to Christ Jesus in his life and his death and in us in him is applied to us. In Him we are already fully forgiven and acquitted and declared righteous and justified and glorified and seated in heavenlies. All that comes purely from our union with Christ. Not by our working it up or some feeling or some conviction. We are already delivered from the slavery of sin. That is from the power of sin. As the defining direction of our lives. God has done this and said this and we believe this. That is our victory. That is how we overcome sin. Now in Philippians 3 and 12, Paul says, Now that I have already obtained, it's not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold on by Jesus Christ. Who laid hold on to Paul? Jesus Christ. Who's going to make sure Paul is presented? See, God gives us His Spirit. The Spirit is earnest. If you put earnest money on that, 
that means that's yours. It's yours. You put the down payment, and the down payment, should, we know when the finances are done, you get it. When you pay the bill, you get it. The earnest money. The Holy Spirit is our earnest money. The Holy Spirit, when He comes into us, He's going to reprove us of sin. And that's the earnest of God when the Holy Spirit gets through with us. Our, our status, our status in God right now, the Holy Spirit's going to make sure we get the full uh, status. We're going to become fully holy, fully perfected, fully righteous, fully justified. But right now, God already sees us that way. God already sees us as righteous. He already sees us as holy. He already sees us as his child. So it's coming already but not yet. Christ has laid hold of Paul for perfection and everlasting blessing. That secures Paul. Secured by grace. Secured by grace. Do you believe that you receive your grace by faith? You don't have anything to boast about in your salvation, right? Wave your hand if you agree. We don't have anything to boast about in our salvation. So if you can believe God saved you by grace, can you believe that God secures you by grace? Wave your hand. That's a harder one. That's a harder one. In, in, in some, if you are a Christian, God created a union between you and Christ. You died with Christ when He died. Because you died, you are now free from the guilt and the power of sin and your fullest and truest identity, that is, your union with Christ. And because of the unshakable position and identity, you are positionally sanctified. But you are not yet perfected. Your calling from now on is to confirm the great transaction of dying to sin's dominion and living in Christ's life by reckoning, accounting yourself to be what you really are in Christ. The big question that I've drawn to, to end with is can a Christian lose his salvation? This is the thing that I, was not, I did not grow up with. This is something that I was taught all my life could not happen. But I want to... In this series, our goal was, as a preaching staff, is not to um, tell you what to think, uh, or, but to help you find tools of how to think. And so I pray that this will help you to have some tools on how to think about this. First, the term Christian must be defined. A Christian is not a person who has said a prayer or walked down an aisle or been raised in a Christian family. While each of these things can be a part of the Christian experience, they are not what makes a Christian. A Christian is a person who has fully trusted in Jesus Christ as their only Savior and therefore possesses the Holy Spirit. John 3.16 and Ephesians 2.8-9. So with this definition in mind, can a Christian lose salvation? It is crucially important question. Perhaps the best way to answer it is to examine what the Bible says occurs at salvation and study what losing salvation would entail. A Christian is a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. A Christian is not simply improved version of the person. A Christian is an entirely new creature. He is in Christ. For a Christian to lose salvation, the new creature would have to be destroyed. The Christian is redeemed. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed. From the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers like Adam. You know, 
I put the Adam in there. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. The word redeem refers to a purchase being made, a price being paid. We were purchased at the cost of Christ's death. For a Christian to lose salvation, God himself would have to revoke his purchase of the individual for whom he paid with his precious blood of Christ. A Christian is justified. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 and 1. To justify is to declare one righteous. All those who receive Jesus as Savior are declared righteous by God. For a Christian to lose salvation, God would have to go back on His Word and undeclare what He had previously declared. Those absolved of guilt would have to be tried again and found guilty. God would have to reverse the sentence handed down from the divine bench. The Christian is promised eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 Eternal life is a promise of, the, of spending forever in heaven with God. That's a God's promise. Believe and you will have eternal life. For a Christian to lose salvation, eternal life would have to be redefined. The Christian promise to live forever. Does eternal not mean eternal? A Christian is marked by God and sealed by the Spirit. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. The gospel of your salvation when you believed. You were marked in Him and sealed. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. The earnest who is a deposit, a guarantee, our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. At the moment of faith, the new Christian is marked and sealed with the Spirit who was promised to act as a deposit, a guarantee, the heavenly inheritance. The end result is that God's glory is praised. For a Christian to lose salvation, God would have to erase the mark, withdraw the Spirit, cancel the deposit, break the promise, revoke the guarantee, keep the inheritance and forego the praise. And lessen his own glory. A Christian is guaranteed glorification. Those he predestined he also called. And those he called he also justified. And those he justified he also glorified. Romans 8 and 30. According to Romans 5, 1, justification is ours at the moment of faith. According to Romans 8 and 30, glorification comes with justification. All those whom God justifies are promised to be one day glorified. Or to be glorified. The promise will be fulfilled when Christians receive their perfect resurrected body in heaven. If a Christian can lose salvation, then Romans 8 and 30 is an error. Because God could not guarantee glorification for all those whom he predestined, calls, and justifies. A Christian cannot lose salvation. Most, if not all, of what the Bible says happens to us when we receive Christ would be invalidated if salvation could be lost. Salvation is a gift of God. And God's gift, the Bible says, are irrevocable. Romans 11 and 29. A Christian cannot be unnewly created. The redeemed cannot be unpurchased. Eternal life cannot be temporary. God cannot renege on His Word. Scripture says that God cannot lie. Titus 1 and 2. Two common objections to the belief that Christians can, cannot lose salvation concern these experimental issues. One, what about Christians who live in a sinful, unrepented lifestyle? They live in it, not 
It just happens once in a while. They live in it. Number two, what about Christians who reject the faith and deny Christ? The problem with these objections is the assumption that everyone who calls himself a Christian actually is a Christian. The Bible declares that a true Christian will not live in a state of continual unrepented sin. 1 John 3 and 6. See, 1 John, uh, we studied this in the original Greek and we studied every single word. And there's the, at the beginning of, of John, 1 John, he says, uh, he says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And the love of the Father does not dwell in you. He said, if you say you have no sin. But then later on, he says, if you sin, if you sin, that's where he said, uh, the love of the Father is not in you. He said, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And then he said, if you sin, the love of the Father is not in you. So is that a contradiction? No, because if you go to the original language, you see the difference. Paul is not saying that we can't sin because we do. We're living in a sinful world. But he said we cannot live in sin. And in John's writing, he's saying the same thing. He says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But if you habitually live in sin. In other words, it's every day you get up and you live to sin. You live to do evil. You live to do wrong. Then, my friend, you're misguided and you're not saved. And the issue there is love. The closer you are to sin, you know, it's not that you go, well, I don't know if I love God enough. That's not the issue. If you don't know how much God loves you, you're very close to sin. God loves us unconditionally while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, and the devil would love nothing more than to convince you that God doesn't love you. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe that God's holding out on you. He may be religious. He may have put a good show, the, the, the person that says he's a saved, but he, he was never born again by the power of God. Because if he was born again by the power of God, he would not habitually live in sin and there would be fruit to be recognized in him. Matthew 7 and 16. The redeemed of God belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear the fruit of God. If you're saved, you want to serve God. You want to come to church. You want to serve. You want to read your Bible. You want to pray. You know, if you lived every day of your breathing existence, you could never pay God back. You could never thank Him enough. You could never praise Him enough. One guy wrote, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing His praise. Some people say it's going to be boring in heaven. All we're going to do is just worship Jesus all the time. We could worship Him for a million years. And it's going to feel like we've just begun. If you're not feeling some of that now, you need to question whether you got the real thing. The scripture says nothing. Say nothing. Nothing can separate a child of God from the Father's love. Nothing. Nothing can remove a Christian from God's hand. John 10, 28, 29. God guarantees eternal life and maintains the salvation. God maintains the salvation. God maintains the salvation He has given us. There again, to get the picture of grace, you've got to go to the stories. There's a story of the Good Shepherd. 
The good shepherd searches for the lost sheep. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulder. And he goes home. Luke 15, 5 and 6. The lamb is found. And the shepherd gladly bears the burden. Our Lord takes full responsibility for our bringing the lost one safely home. Every writer eventually understood this amazing grace. And Jude 24 and 25 further emphasizes the goodness and the faithfulness of our Savior. To Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forever. Amen. I was studying this, and like I said, the way I was raised, we were taught that you could lose your salvation like every week. Therefore, the need for a revival every other week where you could get saved again until you messed up. It wasn't that I habitually lived in sin, but sometimes I sin like I do now. I wasn't lost. I just sinned. I told somebody when I went... When we was going to do this series on the book of Romans, I told the preaching staff, I said, you know, I always battle this book because of the way I was taught. I never want to lead anybody astray. But I cannot preach the word of God without believing in eternal security for me. You're going to have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I cannot believe it any other way. I'm saved, saved, saved by the blood of the Lamb. Thank God I am. But I was struggling with this. I don't know how you're liking the different preachers, but they're doing an awesome job. Teresa done good. Jeff, Sam, they're doing a wonderful job. But it's given me more time to study and prepare and seek God's face for each sermon. And... uh I got this in, the, in my email from a good dear friend of mine. He's actually one of the elders of our church, non-resident elder, Dr. Roy Cantrell. He sent this on 12, 28, 19. He, he's a writer now. He just write, he writes some books and he's retired. And he's a great spiritual father to me. And he sent this to me. I felt like it was as much from God as... Paul sent out a letter to one of the churches. He didn't know I was preaching on this. He didn't know I was fixing to deal with Romans 6. I called him up afterwards and said, how did you know? He said, I didn't. I just felt led to send this to you. I want to read it to you. He said, there's two parts to grace. The first, to save us. And the second is to secure us. Divide them at your own peril. Since it is impossible to unsin, we need faith in grace to save us. Since it is impossible to be perfect, we need faith in grace to keep us. Therefore, since I'm saved by grace, and if we're not saved by our works, and, and since Jesus paid it all, 
what more can we do but totally trust? Why is it that we can believe that we're saved by grace, yet we think it impossible to be secured by that same grace? If Satan can trick you to not trust in both parts of grace, the saved and the secure, he has won the battle for sure. And here is why. How can you be sure you're saved when you're unsure you're secure? How can you be sure you're secure if you're unsure you are saved? Satan's scheme is to get you to believe you can have one part of grace and not the other. He wants you to think grace is divided, but it isn't. The two parts of grace, saved and kept, are one. Satan's trick is to get you to trust in one part of grace and not the other. He is a divider. To divide equal faith, equal parts of grace is to deny grace is it is to deny grace is adequate for both the saving and the keeping. If you choose to separate saved from kept, you will try to save yourself by your own good works. Both salvation and eternity are grace gifts. Separate them, separate them and you abandon God's plan to both save and keep us by grace, grace. You're saved by grace and you're kept by grace. I can't believe any other way. I guess some of you, if you were taught differently than that, you'll have to struggle. You'll have to study. You'll have to pray. You'll have to come to your own conclusion. I will not make that conclusion for you today. But I can tell you, I can't see it no other way. The same God that saved me is the same God that secures me. I'm as sure to be in heaven as if I was standing there right now. Can you say amen? Saved, saved by grace. I thought about that song. Grace, grace, God's grace. That song. I wondered if they put the two graces in there because they understood there's the saving and the keeping of God's amazing grace. I want you to bow your heads for a moment. I want to ask you today, sincerely, how many of you know that you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life, that you're saved and you have eternal life? Raise your hand. Oh boy, that looks good. That looks so good. I want you to tell yourself, nobody can ever take that away from me. Nothing can ever take that away from me. Nothing can ever separate that from me. Don't that feel good? Now, if there's any here today that you don't know that, you don't know that you're saved, that you're really, really saved, will you slip your hand up? Okay, there's some here today. I want you to know that God loves you just like you are today. He died for you. He's already died for your sins. All you got to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. 